So, Mark 16, 1 to 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? (laughs) But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Thanks, Lydia, and thanks, James. (laughs) Beautifully played, nicely done. You make an outstanding angel. Don't let it go to your head. (laughs) I got to pray. Uh, before we have a closer look at that passage from Mark. All right, let's talk to God. Almighty God, thank you that you have given us the Bible. Thank you that it is the testimony uh, of people who knew you, who through whom you spoke about what you wanted in this world and the things that you'd planned and done, particularly in and through the person of Jesus. We ask that now as we take a little closer look at this section in Mark's Gospel, the ending of Mark's Gospel, that you would help us to know more of Jesus and what it means for us, particularly this Easter Sunday. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've thought about this, but death is sacred. Certainly the death of a loved one. Uh, I've noticed that uh, at most funerals, when even when the body of the dead person isn't there in the room, people are quiet, right? It's a little bit like a library, but, but more profound. Like any words would be an intrusion. And intrusive maybe because they're inadequate and powerless in the face of such a profound thing as death. And words, they just feel trite and vapid next to it. And so while silence may not be satisfying, it's better than anything else in the presence of death. Because death is sacred. It demands silence. It demands re- remembrance. You know, like in many RSLs, some which daily dim the lights and request people to stand in silence to remember the fallen servicemen and women while the ode of remembrance is recited. You've probably been there when that's happened. Their deaths the sacred, as are all those for whom we mourn, and we honour them as we remember them. Death is sacred. It demands silence. It demands remembrance. It demands respect. Uh, when I was young and dumber, 
A bunch of us ran around a cemetery one night. We jumped over gravestones and ran over graves. Uh, I remember feeling a little bit sketchy about it at the time. Not because I thought the people's spirits were there, but their bones were. There was something of them there. Some reminder of them that I, that I should have respected. Death is sacred. It demands silence, remembrance and respect. Not to walk over it like someone's grave, but perhaps instead to walk around it. Maybe by thinking about it as little as possible. Because death is uncomfortable. It's troubling. And it's such a downer. You know, as a teenager, I was fixated on death for a little bit there. Uh, Mum can testify to this. Used to stress her out. Uh, she'd tell me, stop being so morbid. After all, no one likes that person at a party who starts the night, night off with, so let's talk about death. <laughs> death is sacred. It's set apart to be kept at a distance. And everyone feels it. Death demands silence, remembrance, respect and distance, which is why Jesus' resurrection from the dead is so shocking. Because it loudly walks all over death and brings death, even our death, up close and personal. And that's why I reckon the passage that we just read earlier is taking us. To see, firstly, that death, that Jesus subverts, he overthrows death. Secondly, Jesus subverts cultural norms. And finally, Jesus subverts fear. So, first up, Jesus subverts death. Because Jesus was not just mostly dead, as some have thought, but all dead. As we read earlier. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Now, I don't know, can you imagine how these women are feeling? They spent years with Jesus. They knew his love for them. They loved him back. They supported him. They watched him do incredible things, say incredible things, promise so much as, as the Messiah. He was the one who was going to save them and their people. And then just two days ago, they watched him get bashed, spat on, stripped naked and skewered to a Roman cross to die. Their hopes skewered with him, skewered to twitch slowly to death like the death throes of a pinned insect. They must have been just exhausted and silent as only death demands because it seems they haven't talked about where they're going. They're going to a tomb with a large stone over its entrance, verse 2. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, oh, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Jesus was in a tomb and tombs are a sign of death. The root of the original Greek word for tomb here is elsewhere linked to memory, which makes sense. A tomb is a sign of someone who was and is no more to remember them by. Because while their body and their bones may be there, their spirit isn't, right? In 1907, uh, Dr. Duncan McDougall, he experimented on six dying patients. He placed them on carefully constructed uh, balance, a carefully constructed balance, and concluded that at the moment of their death, there was a loss in weight of about 21 grams. 
After weighing the six pa- uh, patients, McDougal went and uh, went to work on some dogs. I don't know where he found them, but he found 15 dying dogs and he, he found that no weight loss upon their moment of death occurred. So not surprising because dogs don't have souls. So he concluded that a human soul weighed 21 grams. Now, this experiment hasn't been confirmed, uh, but we all know something significant has gone when someone dies, right? Even if their body is still there, their spirit has gone. And there's a weight to it. So they're there, and yet they're not there. We might visit a grave site not because we think someone's there, even if their bones are, we visit to remember them, which is important. You know, to walk over someone's bones, it's to disrespect the memory of, of that person. Even if you do it accidentally, right? There's still a sense of disrespect that we should have known. Not even ignorance is an excuse to disrespect someone's memory. Remembering, it's important. Death demands remembrance and respect. Death is sacred. Surely that's why the the two Marys and Salome go to visit Jesus' tomb. Not because they think that Jesus is there, but to honour the memory of him by anointing his body with spices and perfumes. Spices and perfumes, they were for rotting corpses, to make them smell less. And the women go to a corpse, to a tomb, to remember and honour Jesus, who's not really there, whose spirit is gone, who is absolutely undeniably dead. Friday night and all through Saturday, his corpse lies in a tomb. And rightly, we're told nothing of what happens on Saturday. There's silence, as death demands. And surely, Sunday morning, and even early Sunday morning, there's still mostly silence from the women, along with remembrance and respect with their spices, and necessarily kept at a distance by a large tombstone. In all this, as always, we see death is hallowed. Death is sacred. Until, shockingly, it isn't. Verse 4. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white, a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. The women, they come to remember the one who was no more, only to find his tomb open, its large stone rolled away, and some random dude in white sitting inside. The fact that the large stone's been moved and that this young guy is in an overly white robe, I mean, how could they have seen that he was in white in such a dark tomb if it wasn't kind of supernaturally lit? Yet putting the bright dude and the moved stone together suggests that something supernatural is going on here. This guy is an angel. Now, if you can believe in God... There's no problem believing in angels or that these women, these women see an angel. But like with other angels in the Bible, the women, they freak out when they see him. I wonder if they let out a yelp or a cry or something, you know, how could they not? Ah! And in so doing, break death's sacred silence along with the angel who doesn't keep the silence. He talks. He says, don't be alarmed. If you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified, He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. 
And just like Jesus said before he died, they do. They see Jesus bodily back from the dead. And we see this in the other Gospels. But what's noticeable here is that this is announced by an angel in a tomb, the sacred place where death reigns. Where there's to be silence, there's supernatural speaking instead. Where there's to be remembering and honouring the dead, the women's spices, they're forgotten. The words, he is risen, desecrate the tomb. With life. Where death encourages distance, ultimately the women end up running closer to the one who's risen to go ahead of them. In every way that death is sacred, Jesus desecrates it with his resurrected life. He treats death and all the sacred conventions attached to it with violent disrespect. He overthrows death, he dethrones it. In his resurrection, Jesus subverts death. But importantly in this, he also subverts cultural norms, which brings us to the second point. Jesus, he he subverts cultural norms by choosing women to be the first witnesses to his resurrection. The New Testament consistently claims that Jesus physically rose from the dead, that hundreds of people over a period of 40 days after his death saw him back from the dead, alive and well, they talked with him, they, they ate food with him, and that the first to bear witness to this, to the fact that his tomb was empty, that he's risen, are women. Now, This is not something that you'd write down in the first century AD in Palestine if you were trying to win the popular vote. Because, and I'm sad to say this ladies, but back then a woman's testimony was not considered trustworthy by Jewish leaders. So much so they weren't even allowed to give evidence in a court of law. Uh, As a Jewish historian of the day, a guy called Josephus writes... But let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the frivolity and boldness of their sex. Charming flat. It's terrible, I know. But it goes to show if you're making up a story about a resurrection and you wanted your first century Jews to believe it, you wouldn't be saying it was women who were the first to witness it. Unless, of course, it just happened to be true. Embarrassingly true. But only then, embarrassing then, clearly never embarrassing to Jesus, the angel was waiting just for these women that they might tell others. And we have their testimony written down for us in the Bible. Whether our culture likes it or not, Jesus, Jesus, he subverts cultural norms, choosing women first to witness to his resurrection and not ending such an important story like we'd expect. Uh, In your Bibles, if you have one open in front of you, you'll probably see a little note after verse 8. Note saying something like the most reliable early manuscripts and other witnesses, early ancient witnesses, do not have Mark chapter 16 verses 9 to 20, which is true. The author, Mark, the Apostle Peter's companion, he didn't write those final verses. They were probably just put there by some zealous church father who was uncomfortable with Mark ending on verse 8, which reads... Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Understandable. It's a bit of a strange way to end an account of the good news of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Son of God, particularly given that the other Gospels, Matthew, Luke and John, they all seem to end on a more completed, polished, a happy note. What do we make of this? What do we make of Mark's ending? 
Well, some think Mark's ending is a clever piece of writing that Mark deliberately leaves the, the reader, us, hanging, that invites the reader to carry on the story in their own lives, to not be like the women here, but instead to believe and proclaim Jesus is risen to all who listen. Others think that at verse 8, that ending at verse 8 is just too jarring, that it actually undermines Mark's own message, that it undermines the received tradition of the church within which Mark was writing, that in fact it can't be the ending that Mark intended, that there was more, it's just been lost. But that God, in his providence, has prevented us from finding it and from knowing it. Either way, the other Gospels, they fill us in. The message of the empty tomb was delivered. The disciples, they do end up meeting with Jesus. And as such, the Gospel of Mark in its current form actually speaks to its credibility, to its reliability, because God's people down through the millennia haven't been willing to accept later added bits just to make things sound better. God stopped us knowing a neater ending here in Mark, and he, in so doing, it pushes back on us wanting the ending that we want, as opposed to the ending that is. For while the Gospel of Mark is very, a very skillfully told story, remarkable really for a 2,000-year-old piece of writing, verse 8 rings true, like it really happened, not like it's been made up. Or why would you make that up? Such that the extraordinary parts beforehand, like the angel saying, Jesus is risen, we need to take that just as seriously. That it really happened. And in so doing, see that Jesus subverts cultural norms as he does death so that we might know him subverting or overthrowing our fear of death too. Which brings us to our final point. Jesus subverts fear. Now, why is it that the women flee from the tomb? Why are they trembling and bewildered? Well, they've met, just met an angel. That would make anyone tremble. But why bewildered? The Greek word translated bewildered is last used by Mark in chapter 5. Jesus there just raised a girl from the dead. And Mark describes the girl's parents and Jesus' disciples who were there and they saw it as completely astonished. They were bewildered big time. Because this kind of thing, it just doesn't happen. Dead people don't come back to life. And yet they saw it. Just like many saw Jesus back from the dead. But how is that possible? It's bewildering, not the least because it, it's challenging the sacredness of death. You know, death demands certain things of the living that the resurrected Jesus refuses to give it. Things like uh, things that those who he suffered and died for may also refuse to give death, like the last word and silence in its presence, like respect, like distance like fear. As the Bible says elsewhere, He, Jesus, shared in their humanity, our humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. The fear of death, you know what that is? It's the fear of meeting God unforgiven. It's justified. And the devil loves nothing less than to push us into doing things and thinking things and saying things that we know are wrong. And then as we stand before God, accusing us of our badness, which we'll know deserves eternal death in hell. That's that's the devil's power. 
to tempt us and then accuse us before God to suffer what we deserve, eternal death. But Jesus, in his very human death, suffered the death we deserved, we deserve in our place, so that instead we might enjoy with him the very human resurrected life he now enjoys, to enjoy this rather than being a slave to the fear of death. In 1974, Paddy Hurst was kidnapped by the Symbionese Liberation Army. That was a small uh, urban guerrilla left-wing group in the US at the time. Her dad was rich. Uh, The group wanted to leverage him for money. However, after two months in captivity, Paddy announced that she joined the group and that her name was now Tanya. She then took part in a bank robbery and a shootout. She helped hijack uh, cars and kidnap others. And she was on the run from the police for over a year until she was caught and thrown in jail. However, in 1979, the then President, Jimmy Carter, commuted her sentence on the grounds of being brainwashed. And President Bill Clinton gave her a full pardon in 2001. She was seen as a classic case of what's called Stockholm Syndrome, of hostages seemingly irrational attachment to their captors. Well, like Paddy, we all suffer from Stockholm Syndrome. We've all been brainwashed into an irrational attachment to death. We may not see it, but our motives to eat endlessly or always buy new stuff or work endlessly or build our perfect home, or perfect family, or perfect relationship, or to be constantly entertained, or whatever it is that we set our hearts on in this world, they're all attempts to grasp at life and dodge death. But the sad irony is none of these can save us from death. In fact, some of them might be getting us there quicker, and we know it. But we can't not go after them. We're irrationally attached to death. And the idea of not having these things, of not having our hearts set on the things in this world that unwittingly keep us on the the path to death as we fear missing out by not going after them, the idea that we might not slavishly crave the things of this world, that's that's a, a bewildering one. But it's one that the risen Jesus brings upon us because he desecrates death. He violently treats death and all its sacred conventions and slavishly fearful lifestyle with contempt. The risen Jesus promises to free us from slavery to death and as we trust him for eternal life instead, uh, the, the risen Jesus promises to free us from slavery to the fear of death, a fear that makes, irrash- makes us irrationally grasp after this and that in the world for life to free us from that slavery, to live with him now and forever. More than that, the risen Jesus frees us to desecrate death itself, its conventions, its slavish lifestyles, to walk on the grave, on its grave, so to speak, to stand in its most sacred place, the tomb of life here and now where death reigns and enjoy the heavy silence, respect and distance that it demands from us and have brainwashed us into to enjoy all that shatter and fall to the one who subverts death, cultural norms and our fear. The one the angels spoke about back then to the women 
and who is speaking to us right now, to you, this Easter Sunday morning, if you listen. Don't be alarmed. He is risen. I'm going to pray that that would be the case for us. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, please help us see that Jesus, in his glorious and magnificent resurrection from the dead, subverts death, cultural norms, and our fear of death, so that we might stand with him in new life and scorn death and the fear of it. Thank you that Jesus' resurrection from the dead confirms that he died for us so that we might stand with him and enjoy victory over death and the fear of death, now and always with him. We thank and praise you for the wonderful truth and the message from that angel way back then to the women. He is risen. Amen.